Hi, welcome to another life-changing message from NBC Church. We hope that this message encourages, challenges and equips you in your walk with Christ. Please consider leaving us a review for the podcast on your chosen platform as it helps with getting the gospel out to thousands of people. Thank you. Good morning. It's good to be with you. It's good to get through that uh, flood that started in Mount Gambia this morning at about 8 o'clock. It sounds like it might have settled a bit by now, but uh, wow, what a journey. Linda sends her love and regards her and Lanka are worshipping at the Unley Park Baptist Church this morning, having taken a weekend's retreat in Adelaide. I'm still not sure why people take weekend's retreats in big cities, but uh, each to their own, even when you're married to them. So she sends her love and regards. And as I preach, I'm just reminded of the words of Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah 9 verses 23 to 24 which you're very familiar with but let it be our prayer as we engage around God's word this morning let not the wise man boast in his wisdom let not the mighty man boast in his might let not the rich man boast in his riches but let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who brings forth steadfast love righteousness and justice on the earth for in these things I delight declares the Lord Father as we open your word together this glorious word from Daniel may your word be our delight Lord more so than our necessary food more so than anything else that we fool ourselves into thinking sustains us in this life may it be your word Lord open to us by your spirit that sustains us now and even through all eternity in the name of Jesus Amen you've got some notes in front of you or by your side Uh, that's not the sermon outline that's something that you can take home later and we'll be coming to aspects of what's written on those notes Uh, in the second little section of this morning's message. This morning's message is simply entitled Prayer, Prophecy and the Coming Prince. Prayer, Prophecy and the Coming Prince. And Jesse, I thank you. I add my thanks to David's for you reading the word this morning, including the fact that you read it from the King James Version, because for reasons that we'll see uh, in a little while, that was probably quite timely. So bless you for that. And may the Lord continue to use you in the reading and the preaching of his word in these days. This little section of scripture that we've encountered this morning and are encountering now took place in 537 BC, 537 years before Christ. Daniel was a descendant of King Hezekiah in fulfillment of the prophecy that Isaiah gave to King Hezekiah in Isaiah 39 verse 7 and he was one of several descendants of the Judean kings in exile in Babylon and Daniel tells us earlier in the book that he'd been reading the word of God in Jeremiah and that he'd understood from the word of God in Jeremiah that Israel, Judah, as it was, Israel, Israel, the northern tribes had already been scattered 120 years or so before, was going to be in Babylon for 70 years. 
Now that's important when we consider the 70 times 7 that we're going to consider in the second section of this sermon this morning. God had revealed to Daniel through the prophet Jeremiah that the exile was going to last 70 years. As you know, 70 is all over scripture. Some of you may be aware that tucked away in Genesis chapter 4, you've got this fellow called Lamech who married two wives and then killed a man and then says to his two wives, if Cain is avenged seven times, Lamech will be avenged or will get his vengeance 70 times. And just in case you don't get that message around Lamech, the murderer, the man who had two wives, though he's not alone in that in the Old Testament we need to acknowledge, but he's boasting about this murder. The next chapter of Genesis, chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 5, tells us that Lamech lived 770 plus 7 years. The life of Lamech, which we're not going to preach on today, is telling us something about what the curse of Satan and the curse of sin had done to this earth and done to human beings. And Satan is almost boasting through Lamech in Genesis 4 and almost God is giving us a testimony of how totally evil is reigning on this planet with the number of years that Lamech lived, 700 plus 70 times 7, 70 plus 7, that the curse is total. Peter, of course, when he spent a bit of time around Jesus, one day comes to him with a question because Peter was aware that the rabbis of his day taught that if somebody committed the same sin against you three, uh, you know, over and over again, you were only obligated to forgive them three times. The rabbis thought that was very generous, reflective of the nature of God. You don't get vengeance until after the third time. The fourth time they do you wrong, you can go hard. So Peter says, recognizing what he's seen in Jesus, Lord, how many times do you think we should forgive when somebody persistently sins against me? Seven times? If the rabbis thought that they were jealous, uh, generous, Peter's thinking, oh, I've got it, seven, spiritually perfect number. And what does Jesus say? Not seven, but 70 times seven, 490. So bear that in mind. What is Jesus doing here? What is Jesus connecting with here? What is Jesus saying he is come to do when he uses the same numbers as Lamech had used back in Genesis 4 and God had used in his sovereignty over Lamech's life in Genesis chapter 5 to, to articulate the totality of the curse over human lives. Bear that in mind as we go into what we're going into today. Prayer, prophecy and the coming prince. Let's look at Daniel's prayer. The reading that we've had this morning does not begin with the beginning of the prayer. We've jumped into it at verse 16. I would encourage you in your Bible studies this week to take the whole prayer and look at what Daniel prays there. And this is the prayer. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy mountain. The word holy there is very, very important. The word holy in Hebrew is Kodesh. It means everything other than that which is created. That which is wholly other, that which is separate from all that is created and is therefore tarnished by the curse and the fall. That's what holy means. 
So when we've been looking over recent months at the place of Jerusalem, the place of Mount Zion, which God consistently calls holy, he's not just saying it's an important religious site, Jerusalem. He's saying there is something about Jerusalem that is wholly other, wholly separate from the rest of the created order. Let's get that into our hearts and minds this day. And remember, you are a holy people. But because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all of those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. The holy mountain has become a desolate sanctuary, notice. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations. There's that word again. And the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, listen and take action. For your own sake, O oh my God, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel... He appeared as a man in this particular instance, as he did in the previous chapter in Daniel chapter 8, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. We're going to begin there with a lesson on prayer. Gabriel came to Daniel while he was still praying at the hour of the evening offering, 3 p.m. in the afternoon. If you know your scriptures well, you will know that the scripture tells us there were four prayers prayed at the hour of the evening offering. Three o'clock in the afternoon. Three of them were answered in more glorious way than even the prayer could have imagined. And one of them was not answered. There was silence. The three that were answered were this prayer here that we're going to look at in great detail in a moment. The prayer of the lame man in the temple courts when Peter and John went up to pray at 3 p.m. at the time of the evening offering. And Peter says to the fellow, look at us. And he fixes his eyes on him, expecting some money. And Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And we all know the chorus. Well, most of us do. He went walking and leaping and praising God. Walking and leaping and praising God. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. That's the second answer of prayers prayed at the third, at 3 p.m., the ninth hour. Third one is Cornelius the centurion, who's praying in his house and Peter's in Joppa and we all know what happens next there as well God loves the Gentiles Peter God let don't call anything unclean that I've called clean and the one that wasn't answered in the way that the prayer was praying Lama Lama Sabachthani my God my God why have you forsaken me? And there's darkness on the earth. 
from midday till that moment when he prays that prayer and heaven is silent and the point the point is this prayers are only answered because his wasn't the prayers of Cornelius the prayers of the lame man the beggar Peter and John the prayers of Daniel reaching backwards in time are only answered because Jesus met with silence from heaven on your and my behalf that leads us into the second point about prayer in this sermon how many times does Daniel say I'm not asking this for my own sake Lord I'm not asking this because I think I deserve anything from you for your own sake O Lord we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own but account of your great compassion we are praying according to the merits of Christ. There are many Christians that still pray as though they were pagans. As though they expected that they might get an answer if they pray hard enough. Or if some unseen gods happen to be feeling generous that day. Brothers and sisters, when we pray as Christians, we are praying according to the merits of Christ. Which is what motivated Daniel's prayer. How do we know that? Because he's of the royal line in exile. A servant of the emperor, the king of Babylon. And he's praying for God's holy people. And God's holy mountain. And God's holy city. He's praying according to God's revealed purposes. And he says to God, Lord, your holy mountain, your holy city, your holy people are desolate. They're a reproach to all who look at them. And Lord, I know you well enough. I know who you are. I know I've tasted of your nature to know that this should not be. Is that the kind of passion that motivates your and my prayers? Because biblically, that's the only kind of prayer that's going to get answered. When we pray according to his merits and we pray according to his revealed will. Incidentally, the, the words desolate and reproach that appear there two or three times when Nehemiah some 92 93 years later Nehemiah is not even born yet when Daniel's praying this prayer goes to the ruins of Jerusalem when King Artaxerxes Longimanus that's a mouthful for a Sunday morning has issued the edict the decree and given Nehemiah permission to go and rebuild Jerusalem. If you read Nehemiah 2 verse 17. If you've got a pencil just scribble that down. Nehemiah 2 verse 17. You will see that what he sees is your holy city Lord is desolate. And your holy city has become a reproach to the nations. 93 years later he uses the very words that Daniel was praying in Babylon. Desolate and a reproach. You see what happens when people pray in line with the revealed will of God. 
God gives them his passion. God gives them his very words, his very understanding of what they're praying for. Which is why when Gabriel speaks to Daniel about the prayer, he says, he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. I think the King James Version there uses that word insight as skill or translates it as skill. I have now come to give you skill with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued. And I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. By the way, Daniel is referred to as being highly esteemed. But a few moments earlier, he was confessing his sin and the sin of his people. And he wasn't making it up. Daniel knew he was a sinner. So if any of you today, when you come to pray, start to think to yourself, oh, God's not going to hear my prayers because I've committed a big sin yesterday. Or I've got a repetitive sin that keeps happening in my life. Sinless perfection is nonsense. Sinless perfection on this earth is impossible. And Daniel wasn't highly esteemed in God's eyes because of sinless perfection. He was highly esteemed in God's eyes because he acknowledged his own sin, he acknowledged his own helplessness, and he went on praying anyway. I hope that encourages someone today. If you know you've got problems, then just tell God you've got problems. Tell him what they are. And then pray. Because he esteems those with a humble and contrite spirit. Daniel says something very, very interesting. Depending on which version of the Bible you're using. Verse 21. While I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, now the NASB and the English Standard Version, say, came to me in my extreme weariness that literally the phrase there is literally came to me when i was wearied with weariness hands up if you've ever been wearied with weariness well, surprisingly few unless others are just too modest daniel was wearied with weariness according to the new american standard bible or the english standard version whereas the king james says that it gets the focus off Daniel and puts the focus on Gabriel, he flew swiftly. So the focus in the King James Version is about Gabriel flying swiftly. I wonder where he'd flown from. Incidentally, I just want to throw something in here, and you needn't take this on board, and it's certainly not thus saith the Lord. It would not surprise me if the stars in the heavens were some kind of recharge place for angels. Psalm 104 tells us he makes his ministers, angels, flames of fire. We're told also in scripture that the morning stars sang together in Job 38. They're flames of fire. What are stars made of? Fire, as far as we know. Does God recharge his angels? Because remember, they're not divine. They're created beings. So therefore, by definition and implication, they wear out, probably not as quickly as you and I wear out, but they need recharging somewhere. Anyway, that's just something to throw in. Did he fly from a star swiftly to get to Daniel? The main point there, however, is focus on Daniel, wearied with 
weariness. If you are wearied with weariness in your life today, then prayer is the place to be. And the angel strengthened him. Not just any angel, the angel Gabriel. The angel Gabriel that was later to appear to Zechariah, John the Baptist's father. The angel Gabriel that had so much to do with the incarnation of Christ. What a glorious, glorious thing. So there's some little windows into prayer. Let's look at the prophecy now. From verse 24. 70 weeks. The word there is heptads. Units of seven weeks. 70 heptads. 70 units of seven weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Notice who this prophecy is about and who it's for. From a dispensational perspective, it is very, very important that we distinguish the times, as Augustine put it, so that the scripture is in harmony with itself. The purpose of this prophecy is to instruct and give skill and understanding to the descendant of a Judean king, a king of Judah, about his people and his holy city. Really, really important that you remember this. Remember we said a number of weeks ago now, if you know you are a dispensationalist Christian, if you believe the following things, scripture is literal. God says what he means and means what he says, except when there is obvious idiom or poetry in the word of God. Number two, a dispensational Christian always is careful to distinguish between are we talking about Israel here or are we talking about the church here? And if God's talking about Israel here, it doesn't mean that we can't learn something from it because it's in the word of God for our edification. But he's still talking about Israel and the Jewish people. Or is he talking about the church? And the third thing I suggested to you that characterizes a dispensational Christian is one who believes the purpose of history is about the revelation of the glory of God. And the other things take second fiddle, if you like. They fall into line behind the revelation of the glory of God. So this prophecy that's coming here is about the revelation of the glory of God as it pertains to the Jewish people and God's holy city, Jerusalem. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. You may have noticed, there in verse 24, there are seven things mentioned that is going to happen, that God's going to bring to pass for the Jewish people and for his holy city. We haven't got time today to go into what those seven actually mean, but I would point out to you that at least two of those are dependent on the temple in Jerusalem being functional by the time this prophecy is fulfilled. That might give you a little bit of key to this prophecy. Verse 25. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, which occurred, I'm going to let you know, and this is where your notes might come in if you want to follow them, particularly the... Uh, the, the simpler table on page one of your notes. 
this decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem occurs in Nehemiah chapter 2. And we're told at the beginning of Nehemiah chapter 2, the date which it happened. Which was 1st of Nisan 445 BC, or according to the Julian calendar, 14th of March 445 BC. Those of you that are like me and are not mathematicians and get hopelessly bamboozled by dates, please don't switch off at this point. I have a tendency to switch off whenever anybody mentions numbers, so you're in good company. If I can preach this, you can listen to it. Until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven heptads, seven uh, units of seven weeks, and 62 heptads. 62 units of seven weeks. It will be built again with plaza and mort, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the 62 heptads, the 62 units of seven weeks, which are years, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, or no one, or he will be cut off but not for himself. Jesus fulfilled all three of those things. They even took his robe off him and cast lots for it when he went to the cross. His disciples all scattered. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And why was he cut off? Why was he crucified? Was it for himself? No, it was not. Cut off but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. We'll pause there. This is what Gabriel was saying to Daniel. Daniel, you know, because you're living through it, that it's now 537 BC. In a period of time to come, which Daniel couldn't have known at that point, was about 92 years down the track, there will be an edict to rebuild Jerusalem. At that point, at the point when the edict is issued, Daniel, to rebuild Jerusalem, this clock, of these seven groups of seven years and these 62 groups of seven years will begin ticking. Now we've got the whole Bible. Glory be to God. And we know, because it's written in Nehemiah 2, the exact date that that edict was issued. The angel says to Daniel... There will then be 49 years, 7 times 7, until something significant happens. Guess what happened? 49 years after that edict was issued to Nehemiah by Artaxerxes Longimanus. Malachi spoke his last prophetic word to the Jewish people in 397 BC. Exactly 49 years after Artaxerxes had given the edict, the decree, to rebuild Jerusalem. Then the angel saying to Daniel, that will start the second sequence of seven-year periods ticking, and there'll be 62 of those until Messiah the Prince. What does that mean? That's a reference to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, and Jesus' fulfillment of it in Matthew's Gospel, if you look at the table on the front part of your notes, where Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. 
exact to the day. Artaxerxes Longimanus issued the decree according to the Julian calendar, the calendar that we use, on the 14th of March, 445 BC. And Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the 6th of April, AD 32. We're nearly finished with the numbers, so persevere with me a little bit longer, and I promise we'll move off numbers. But the glory of this is that in 537 BC, an angel appears to Daniel, the praying prophet, and gives the exact number, not just of years, but of days before Messiah the Prince is cut off because they rejected him decisively. His holy city rejected Jesus decisively as their king from the 6th of April, AD 32. And in your notes you'll see that great Bible scholars from the past, including Chuck Missler, who's not that distant past, in fact he's still present, praise God. Is he? Is he gone? Oh, he is past. He's in glory. He's in glory. I didn't know that. You see, I've learned something this morning. The exact amount of days, down to the very amount of days, 173,880 days, 69 times 7 Hebrew Jewish years. What a prophecy. What attention to detail. Doing justice, remember, to 70 times 7, which we've suggested, and we'll come back to this later, is very, very important to understand in terms of what Jesus came to this planet to do. But what that means is, Israel and the Jewish people still have seven years left for the seven things outlined in verse 24 of Daniel 9 to be fulfilled. That one heptad, that one week of years, hasn't happened yet. And though we won't be going into the tribulation this morning, in fact, as born-again believers, none of us will be going into the tribulation at all. Glory be to God, because tribulation is about the wrath of God. And if you're a Christian here today, you've been delivered from the wrath of God, so you will not live to see those seven years upon earth. But there's still future, according to this prophecy. So, can we understand anything more about this prophecy and what it's telling us? After the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing or no one or not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, the prince who is to come is an interesting expression. Gabriel has already introduced the Messiah to Daniel as Messiah the prince with a big P. This verse talks about a prince with a small p who is to come. What you and I know, because we're historians, because we've got the benefit of history behind us, is that in AD 70, Titus, who was then a Roman general, but who was on his way, and God knew this, back in 537 BC, to becoming emperor himself, so the prince who is to come. It was a general who destroyed Jerusalem, but he became Caesar. And also in this term that Gabriel uses here, 
there's a dual fulfillment. There's a reference to Titus himself as general and then emperor, but there's a reference, as we'll see in a moment, to the figure of the Antichrist. And its end, that is the city and the temple, will come with a flood. Now that word flood there refers to a mass dispersion of people. It's not about, you know, a tsunami, like suddenly the Mediterranean, you know, charged in 30-odd miles or something like that and just swamped Jerusalem. That is a prophetic reference to the dispersion of people. The temple will come to an end, the city will come to an end, and there will be such a dispersion of Jerusalem's inhabitants that you've never seen before, Daniel. Which is precisely what happened in AD 70. And even to the end, there will be war. Now, this little part of verse 26 is talking about the age in which we live, the times in which we live, the times in which we've been living since that flood in AD 70. Even to the end, there will be war and desolations are determined. Before we move to verse 27, you need to understand that prophetically, between verse 26 and verse 27 here, there's a 2,000 year gap. We know it dispensationally as the age of the church, where the church is God's primary missionary base, in fact, his only missionary base upon this earth. God's primary missionary birth during the age of, uh, primary missionary base during the age of Israel was Israel. For the last 2,000 years, it's been you and me, not literally you and me, but our brothers and sisters in Christ through the last 2,000 years. There is a 2,000 year gap between verse 26 and verse 27. But see, it doesn't matter to the Jews, because what matters to the Jews is, how are you going to fulfill your promises to us, Lord? So Gabriel doesn't say to Daniel, who's a Jew, oh, by the way, between here and here, there'll be this thing called the church. Jesus introduces the church in Matthew 16, verse 18. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's the first reference ever to the church. Don't confuse the church and Israel. And as somebody once said, Satan got his minions in hell that day scurrying to find the Encyclopedia Satanica to work out what the church was. But they couldn't find it because Jesus had introduced it and Jesus had said, I will build my church. Future tense back then in Matthew 16 verse 18. But then, after the church is no longer on the earth, verse 27. He, that is the prince who is to come with a small p, talking now about the Antichrist. By the way, Antichrist. People labour under the illusion that anti means against. That the Antichrist, you'll know him because he's somehow against Christ. The Greek word anti does not mean against. He's not going to become as some kind of horrible monster or troll or something that is just so obviously evil that everybody, you know, runs for the hills. He's going to be charismatic. He's going to be good looking. He's going to come onto the world stage and he's going to say to the world, to the point where he might even have deceived the very elect if that were possible, I've got the answer. I know the solution. Trust me. Because anti in Greek means instead of. 
or apart from Christ. And you can tell a movement that is an anti-Christ movement, and this is very, very important for our days, because it's trying or endeavouring or promising to bring in the kingdom of God, to bring in universal peace, universal disarmament, universal freedom from disease, apart from Christ. Any individual movement, social justice movement, whatever it calls itself, that seeks to do that apart from Christ has got the Antichrist spirit in it somewhere. And I'll leave you to do the application. But think about it. Karl Marx, founder of communism, he was Jewish. Where did he get the idea from that there could be a worldwide utopia where men weren't falling out over what private property they owned? He got it from his Jewish upbringing in the Old Testament, the Kingdom Age, the Millennium. Where did Hitler get his idea of a thousand-year Reich from? He was no Jew. We all know that. But where did he get the idea of a thousand years from? A millennium. But we'll do it apart from Christ. We'll do it. The Germans will do it. And before any of us start thinking, you know, how could the Nazis have been so hoodwinked? The British Empire once saw itself and parts of the church once saw themselves as bringing in worldwide utopia. The sun never sets on the British Empire. Let's go to war. Let's kill lots of people, including in China, in the Opium Wars, for example. And then missionaries can come on the back of that and preach the gospel. Where do you think Christianity sometimes gets a bad name from? Because people get their dispensations mixed up and people get their view of Christ mixed up and they start to think, well, this is all about social justice. This is all about universal peace. Let's all have universal peace now. No. That's only going to come with the second advent of Jesus Christ. I'm probably preaching too long. Forgive me if I'm preaching too long. I'm nearly done. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. That is in the middle of seven years. That is still to come. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. Notice in the tribulation, the temple is functioning. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. Even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. This is the thought I want to leave you with today, with this sermon on prayer, prophecy and the coming prince. Satan's goal, from the moment that he deceived Eve into taking that apple, has to make humanity, has been to make humanity and all of this planet desolate. And some of you here today are sitting there, if you're anything like me, standing here, knowing that Satan ravaged your life. He deceived you. He hoodwinked you. And then you yourself have become desolate and a reproach, including at times in the way you view yourself. Because that has always been Satan's goal. The thief cometh not says the King James Version, but to steal and to kill and to destroy. And our lives 
And our families' lives bear testimony and witness to that. But Jesus didn't finish there in John 10, verse 10. What did he go on to say? But I am come that they might have life. And they might have it abundantly. They might have it in abundance. Or quite simply, as the original Greek says it, they might have abundance. When Jesus returns to the Mount of Olives, there will be such abundance, such life in that city, the city of Jerusalem, and the land around it. And we are seeing the fig tree putting out its fruit already in the prosperity of Israel. The ground, the land is preparing the way for Jesus Christ to return, to fulfill his promises to the Jewish people. But brothers and sisters, it won't stop there. It won't end there in Jerusalem. The millennial age is all about Jesus Christ fulfilling the promises and the covenant of God with the whole of his creation. The early church had a very, very simple way of understanding the times. And I don't think they were far wrong the more I think about it. They said creation to Abraham, 2,000 years. From Abraham to Christ, 2,000 years. From Christ till his return, 2,000 years. And then the millennium, 1,000 years. How many thousand years is in that equation there? Seven, 7,000. Mirroring the week of creation. The millennial age mirroring the seventh day where God rested. Because the earth will have her rest. You and me are enjoying, if you're in Christ, the first fruits of that rest in him now. Not in the world, because in the world you will have tribulation. But in him, when we come back to him, we are experiencing the first fruits of that Sabbath rest even now. But the millennium, when he reigns from Jerusalem, will say to Satan and to Lamech and to anybody else that has ever set themselves up against the knowledge of God and Jesus his Messiah, I do all things well. Look at this age. Look at this world. Look at these people. I do all things well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for this amazing passage of scripture. We thank you for Daniel's prayer life, Lord. We thank you for the fact that he was highly esteemed in your sight. And therefore the angel Gabriel came to sent by you, sent swiftly by you, to give him skill and insight and understanding. And Lord, it takes our breath away to know that you predicted, you spoke to Daniel 173,880 days until Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on that donkey. So Lord, forgive us this morning 
wherever we look at the reproach of our own lives, wherever we look at the desolation that sin and our own poor decisions and the decisions of others has caused in our lives, when we look at those things and we think, oh, I'm hopeless, it's hopeless, might as well give up now. Give us, Lord, the spirit of Daniel that was willing to be wearied with weariness in order to see your name glorified. Fill us with your spirit, Lord. Because your spirit points us, Lord, to the coming prince, the Messiah, the prince with the big P, even to Jesus, who said, I am come that you might have life and have it abundantly. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, world without end. Amen. Thank you for joining us for church today. We pray that this message deepened your relationship to Christ and drives you to action. Our church is at 1 McDonald Street, Naracourt, South Australia, 10 a.m. Sundays, and you can find us on all your favorite podcast platforms. Please consider leaving a review as it helps to expose people to the gospel and great teaching across the nation. Thank you.